when you start with the idea that you know how the story is going to go and you lose the curiosity and fear builds up, what it creates is a third word and that's cynicism. And so if I can't pray in this petitionary prayer anymore, I don't want to go somewhere else because I know how that story is going to work out. It's going to end just as poorly as petitionary prayer did. So why am I even going to try contemplative prayer? And so out of the fear of what's going to come right there, because I feel like I know the conclusion, I'm not going to receive anything new. And so I think that's the balance of curiosity has to be stronger than your fear. And if, if the God that you're working with is a God who is going to be really frustrated if you try something new, the God you're working with is a God who's waiting for you to step out of bounds, if the God you're working with is one that creates trepidation over everything you do, then it's going to foster a greater sense of fear. And so you're never going to have that curiosity because it's constantly squelched by fear. What I would say is the move to, as scripture says, you can't go anywhere that God isn't there. And that God is with you in all things. And the idea of fear is antithetical to the spirit that God has given you. No place I would rather be. No place I would rather be. No place I would rather be. And here in your love, here in your love. No place I would rather be. Hi there. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I, as always, am still Seth, your host. I'm going to have to find a better way to introduce these, but for now, I'm still Seth, your host. So today I sat down via Skype with Luke Norsworthy to talk a bit about his new book, God Over Good, Saving Your Faith by Losing Your Expectations of God. And I must tell you, this book is extremely easy to read. And very impactful. The stories that Luke weaves in um, really hit home for me. There's a lot of similarities in his story and what I hear from a lot of other people. There's a lot of similarities just in our faith in general, and it's nice to talk about them openly. And so we're going to talk a bit about our faith, how we build the structure of it, what God is, what God looks like, and then what that means for our faith daily, what that means for our churches weekly, and what that means for the way that we live right now. Not tomorrow, but right now. Like what that call is to change in our lives, uh, to realize that God is over good, that God is so much better and so much bigger than any metaphor that we could figure out how to talk about him with. So really hope you enjoy it. Here we are. Luke Norsworthy. Luke Norsworthy, I'm so happy that you're here on the show. So I've listened to, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 episodes of your show because it's existed for like, I don't know what, four, five, 17 Forever. years? Forever. Yeah. yeah. And and so I just want to be upfront. Um, I'm a big fan and I'm also slightly jealous of your pun game because your puns usually come off much better than mine. Mine tend to be a little too much head knowledge. And, mm. um, and so 
I have no idea where that will go, but I'm I'm slightly worried and also excited for this episode. But I am a little worried about the punness that that may well, that may come I, out. I'll do my best to keep it on point, <laughs> but um, I know that I they're just really a gift. I'm just a conduit. I'm giving it from above, and I'm just <laughs> a mere vessel for these puns to flow through. It's a spiritual gift. It's in it's in the apocrypha, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's definitely in there. It talks about puns. I forget what the yeah. Greek word is for puns, but it's definitely Second Maccabees, there. It's in there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. For sure. <laughs> so uh, for those not uh, so for those not familiar with you, give me a bit a bit about what you do, because I mean you're you're a pastor, you, you're a podcaster, and so what would yep. you say that you are? What what is your job? Uh, well, I mean, my bread gets buttered being a pastor of a church. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, that's like the first big block of who I am. Uh, like besides like the whole, like I'm a dad, I'm a husband, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so I, I, obviously I'm a writer and I am podcaster, pastor, kind of all those things. But I kind of feel like they're all kind of intertwined in one way or the other. In a lot of ways it's, you know, creating content. And I think each of them have their own different, um, place in like, like the bigger work that I want to be doing. And Mm -hmm. so I like, I'm kind of like, um, I like having multiple things that I get to have my fingers in. And so that's, um, that's why I like it. So if you were to name that bigger work that you want to be doing, what is that? Mm. Good question. Seth, you're off to a solid start. (laughs) Um, the bigger work that I want to be doing, I've never tried to like encapsulate all of those different hats into one thing. I want to be creating like a life-giving creator. And I don't know exactly how to describe that. I think my sermons hopefully are, are life-giving. Hopefully my, my, my writing and uh, podcast stuff can do the same thing. I, I, maybe that's the kind of the, the tie. But, but ultimately, I think it's someone who's curious themselves. And it's my curiosity, I think, that's pulling that all together. And so it's, it's work that all is kind of the the byproduct of my own personal like journey. And so I'm doing like, I'm doing theology in the public, but really it's, I'm trying to be transparent about my own spiritual journey. Sure. So I wanted to do, I don't normally do icebreakers, but I don't often talk to people from Texas. And so I just need to clear the air. And I say from Texas, I'm fairly certain I read in your book that you were born in in Philadelphia. Yes. Yes. Correct. You're right. I mean, I was born in Texas and so but you left. It's to, but you ran away. So see, I was I was called to meet my spouse in Virginia, and you mm-hmm. have to you know you have to answer the call as yeah, as it's to. given to you. Um, mm-hmm. I, although I've lived in Virginia now, I think as long as I ever lived in Texas, and so <laughs> I think the scales have tipped towards me being a Virginian. I definitely no yep. longer have my accent unless I talk with my family. Is there a chance we could get the accent by the end of this podcast? Uh, it's gonna. It's probably gonna have to be you. I have to hear it. But if we say yep. words like right, I'll get it. All right, all right. Well, yeah. Usually when I'm exhausted, and luckily enough I'm not today, then then hmm. my brain. So in college, I took a class on professional speaking. We had to record ourselves and remove the ums and the likes and the uh, all of the stuff that makes you sound like you don't know what you're talking about. And mm-hmm. we also had to remove our accents. And in the process of doing that and filming it, I, I broke whatever it was in my brain that makes the accent work to where I often find I mirror whoever's accent I'm speaking with. It sounds like I used to live where you were from 25 years ago, but I no sure. longer do. Uh, although I've come I, to find that, that, that it's endearing to people. Like they always latch on to it slightly because I kind of sound like I might be from where they were from. 
I did that to a girl from Essex uh, a week ago, and she found it more like offensive that I was <laughs> using like a very shoddy British accent, yeah. which to me it was very entertaining. To her, not so much. Yeah, well, I find that uh, I'll say potato wrong. Like that, <laughs> when I watch like a yeah. lot of Doctor Who or something like that, yeah. I'll say pot- or or Peaky Blinders or something. I'll say potato and a few other words wrong, uh, without yeah. without catching myself. I, I, so garage obviously is my go to, but garage? I oh, recently garage. was. This is Australian, but you know how all the Hillsong guys they don't re- call it church; they call it church. Mm-hmm. Church. I said that in church. I just like a church <laughs> came out, and I didn't mean to. It just happened. So. And, oh, but was it well received? Um, I don't remember. I feel like I just kept moving. Actually, I was singing. I was not actually preaching when I said that. I was just singing a song, and I was like, I just sang the word chetch. Rise up, chetch. Anyway. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, just, to set, just to set the thing. So a Whataburger or In-N-Out Burger? Don't. I, I, I don't really. Don't. If you, uh, five if you guys had to choose. My, I mean, Five Guys is my go-to burger no. place. Which Isn't that Virginia-based? Yes. Yeah, sorry about that. No, it, uh, it's okay, but I'd rather... Just, mm. Okay, I was driving home from Dallas uh, talking to someone you've had on your podcast, Suzanne Stabile, correct? Mm-hmm. She's yep. been on? Suzanne's good. And I was coming up, it was like two in the morning, and nothing was open, and I went to Whataburger. The The problem, though, is they had the caloric intake for each of their like meals or their burgers or whatever, and I sat there for two minutes just staring at like 900 calories Mm-mm. for a burger, and I was like, why would you put that on there? Mm-mm. We already all acknowledge... This isn't good for me. If I'm going to do it to myself, don't tell me what I already know. So the way that I do the caloric intake thing is is much like if I go to shop for a suit and I check the price tag, I didn't mm-hmm. belong in that store. If you go in a Whataburger, you shouldn't check the price tag or you shouldn't. Yeah. You, you just yeah. don't. It's not why you go there. No. Um, for me, you go to dip chicken fingers in gravy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, that's fine. As the Lord intended. <laughs> yeah. And then... And then I think I think we I don't believe we were recording it. So uh, from what I understand, you prefer the Longhorns, but I need to know why they're better than the Raiders, so that I can dig in on my brother a little bit. The Raiders, as in like the the Texas, Texas Tech, Tech, yeah. I didn't even know they really counted. That's weird. <laughs> That's a fine answer. That's a yeah. fine answer. I um, mean, you can take you take out the one stinking catch by uh, Mr. Crabtree, um, Michael. Against, I don't want to mention the safety's name, but because uh, he's from Austin, uh, but I don't know why he didn't catch the previous pass. Uh, anyway, that's a deep call back to uh, a game that the Red Raiders actually had success in. But I had a friend of mine who actually played for Tech, mm-hmm. and so much love and respect to the Red Raiders. But Texas forever. Hold on one second. I think I'm about to get interrupted by two daughters. I respect this. He's using hand signals right now to call. I'll I'll narrate this. Um, I- so right now, <laughs> Seth is currently using hand signals, much like someone who trains dolphins communicates with them. Uh, he is at a, a parenting level where he doesn't even need to say anything. He's just doing like the snaps and fingers. They haven't breached the door yet. Breached is okay. probably the best word. Breach. I, I don't hear them anymore. Hold. Hold. <laughs> um, all right. Oh. Here we go. You have written a book, God Over Good, which is harder True. to say than it. It, than you would think that it is. And the subtitle is Saving Your Faith by Losing Your Expectations of God. And so I want to focus in on two of those words. When you say your expectations, do you mean your expectations, or are you inferring that mine are already wrong? 
As in Luke Norsworthy's expectations or listener or, or reader's expectations? Either is fine, but your name is listed underneath it. And so the title for the book, is it more directed at yourself or more directed at the person that picks it up? I, I, th- I wrote this as my own attempt to make sense of my faith. And I didn't even write this content in the expectation that I'd become published as a book. And so it, it was written initially for me, and a, a lot of what I do in there is autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that you know everyone has their own expectations, and for me to fill in the blank over what they look like to you uh, would be a bit of, as you might say, tomfoolery. It would be uh, a fool's game because I can't I can't say what your expectations are. Everyone has expectations. We all insert them into it. And they're all going to be different. They're going to be affected and influenced by the different contours of your life from your parents to what you watch, to what you listen to, to where you're from. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some like kind of like meta narrative stuff that we all do this on a, on some level. Meta narrative. You're the second person ever that I've ever heard say that. So my pastor also says that quite often. Okay. I know it sounds his, like a smart I know what his gal. definition of that is. What is a meta narrative? Specifically, I guess, when we talk about God. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would say meta narrative in like, let's do some Joseph Campbell work on this, mm-hmm. the monomyth where there's certain things that are archetypal that, uh, transcend continents and cultures that seem to be endemic of the human experience. And so that's what I'm meaning. Like there, there is this sort of, uh, grander thing that's happening than just my own sort of like this is who I am and this is what I think, but there is something about humanity that kind of flushes this out in our own individual ways. One of the stories in your book, you talk about a guy, and I'm going to get the metaphor wrong. You tell a story of a guy that builds basically a McMansion at the beach, and he's good. Uh-huh. He builds this wall. It's great, it's great, it's great, until there's just a tsunami. I'm going to call it a tsunami, a large wave. Sure. That destro- tsunami. I that, like that. That destroys the entire thing. Um, but mm-hmm. what I find odd about that story is he still has so much faith in what he's built upon himself um, that he can go back. He sees the wave coming anyway. Instead of fleeing, he decides, I'll just stand behind this nice, really nice, uh, densely yeah. compacted sand wall. And so something about that spoke to me. And I feel like it's because that I see is. I try not to usually say what I actually think on these shows, but I'm going to not do that today. So I feel like that is so much of what the church is today. We, we've we created Jesus or the church or religion into a box that doesn't really have any weight outside of the ink on the pages of the Bible. Mm. So mm. maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't think I am. Maybe I am. So that story in the book... Where were you? Where where were you at in your life when you wrote that? Because you'd said so much of this was written to you, not really intending to be published. Yeah. I, I never thought of it as why didn't in this parable this guy why didn't he just run away? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in my mind, like this wave comes and there's no way to get away from it, mm-hmm. and so maybe the idea of getting away from it was just wasn't in this character's uh, realm of possibility. Uh, regardless, I was thinking more of that you build something and you build it for moments like this. Uh, two weeks ago I was in, um, Israel and I was at this house that was maybe, uh, I mean, you could see the, uh, the Gaza strip and you could see the wall mm-hmm. from basically their backyard. And like everyone in that area, they have this bomb shelter built into their house. And just two days before there have been, um, 
a couple kids that were killed. And so they were bracing for retaliation. And so the previous night they were told, you got to go spend it in the bomb shelter. And so the night before she slept in the bomb shelter at their house, right next to the Gaza Strip. When you have something like that in your house, you're going to run to it no matter what you think is going to happen, because that's what you, you have it there for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think faith becomes that thing where we think like th- th- I've built it for this moment. When crisis happens, we regurgitate the stuff that we have kind of concretized, that we have internalized, that we have held on to. And that's what's going to come out. The, the weirdest thing about being a pastor is that you hear people say things that, that you're like, you heard that 20 years ago. You haven't like brought that up. You haven't had that in discussion, but somehow in this moment, like that's all you have to say, which maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's not a good thing, but uh, I think crisis kind of brings some of the stuff out. And so maybe, maybe if we can play with this metaphor a little bit longer, in some ways we determine where we're going to go in crisis and what we do beforehand. And so this guy has built a structure. And so when crisis comes, he's just naturally going to run to what, what he's been building all along. Almost automatically. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Um, I mean, if, I mean, that's what you do when you evacuate for a tornado, you, you go internally to what you trust. Yeah. Muscle memory. Yeah. The, the problem is though, if that's my faith, what do I do when it washes away? Well, what I think the point of the parable is, is that the very thing he was most afraid of, that he thought to be water that was going to destroy him, was actually living water that was trying to deliver him. Mm. And that the life was not found staying on the on the shore, but it was what the living water was trying to get him to experience in the water. And so what he had built was actually an obstacle for the life that he needed to receive. And so the point was, even after this guy gets washed ashore he's still trying to fight back and get to the land and he's trying to go back through the motions. And and this is the story that you hear for, for many people that, you know, have gone through the, I'm assuming you've talked construction, deconstruction, reconstruction mm-hmm. on your podcast. And often when people go through that sort of like deconstruction, one of the very normal experiences that people try to go through the motions that help them build their faith in the first place. And so I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the Max Lucado book or whatever it was that you, you read. And I'm going to play the songs again that I listened to when I was growing up and my faith was making sense to me. And I'm going to go and hear the same sermons again. And you're, you're going to go through the motion saying that you can reestablish what at first made sense to you. Mm-hmm. The point is that like, you got to move forward on that. No, I agree. Yeah. And I've, yeah, we've talked a lot about deconstructing and reconstructing. Try not to talk about it as often as, as I think others would like but nobody wants to read the same chapter over and over. But one of my favorite things um, that one of the listeners said one time is they prefer to think of it less as reconstruction and more like, or deconstruction and reconstruction and more like art restoration from a master's hand. A You had something that you did and my I, I built this Van Gogh painting and then my daughter came in and finger painted on top of it. And if that's my faith, I've done something that I thought was good and beautiful and holy onto this beautiful canvas of someone that bears the image of God and that salvation and deconstruction and whatnot is basically working your way back down to the original masterpiece, hmm. which I like a lot. I like I like that image a lot. Um, it's still just as painful because um, for art reconstruction, there's you do destroy things. Like what is gone never comes back. Like it's the patina yep. is gone. And if you do it poorly, you'll ruin, you can, you'll ruin something that, that I don't know how to repair. Yeah. 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 No, I get that. I get that. How do we take in new information and at the same time allow it space to process 
and disrupt what we currently know without just checking out an ejectioning seat right out of the sanctuary. As in what? Like learning new ideas? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean like anything. Like some of the biggest pushback that I've gotten on lately is um, I've talked a lot about uh, contemplative prayer at church and with friends. And they're like, well, that's really like a Catholic thing. That's, that's not really what we do. Like you're probably doing it wrong. It's just too emotional. Um, and, and they just they just check out because it's new information and it's not necessarily something that they want to entertain. But I find those that do entertain dip their toes in slowly and they never really know how to enter into an engagement with it for fear of either doing it wrong and so not gaining anything from it or fear of it breaking what they already know and then really not knowing, well, okay, well, so if we're talking about contemplative prayer, I no longer can pray in a petitionary way but I don't know how to pray this other way. And so I guess to heck with it, I'm just not going to do it at all. So how do we, how do we take in any new information? I I think there's three, three words, curiosity, uh, fear, and I'll get the third one in a second. But it it seems that when you start with the idea that you know how the story is going to go and you lose the curiosity and fear builds up, what it creates is a third word and that's cynicism. And so if I can't pray in this petitionary prayer anymore, I don't want to go somewhere else because I know how that story is going to work out. It's going to end just as poorly as petitionary prayer did. So why am I even going to try contemplative prayer? And so out of the fear of what's going to come right there, because I feel like I know the conclusion, I'm not going to receive anything new. And so I think that's the balance of curiosity has to be stronger than your fear. Mm-hmm. And if, if the God that you're working with is a God who is going to be really frustrated if you try something new. The God you're working with is a God who's waiting for you to step out of bounds. If the God you're working with is one that creates trepidation over everything you do, then it's going to foster a greater sense of fear. And so you're never going to have that curiosity because it's constantly squelched by fear. What I would say is the move to, as scripture says, you can't go anywhere that God isn't there. And that God is with you in all things. And the idea of fear is an antithetical to the spirit that God has given you. You know, this second Timothy for God did not give you a spirit of mm-hmm. fear, but of love, you know, power and boldness. However you want to translate that self-discipline, maybe. Um, I think moving away from fear to curiosity is what I think is going to help you get forward. And, and I don't think every new idea that you receive is going to be good or one that you're going to want to hold on to. But if fear is what is already in your hand, then you're not going to have the ability to receive anything else. So I always like to ask this question to pastors, and and I asked it of Austin Fisher, who I know you spoke with. There's a guy with a great Texas accent, right there. He really, yeah. really sounds like Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I at one point thought during his book he was going to say, "Doubt is all right, all right, all right." Like I <laughs> felt like that should have been the tagline I mean, for it. But well, anyway, you should have just asked him to, and he probably would have. He seems he seems like a genuinely nice guy. Yeah, he's a friendly fellow. Okay, so, Austin Fisher. Uh, so so when I so. As I was reading through your book, I'm fairly certain we're the same age. Um, you're 36, correct? 37. Oh, did as you? As of two months ago. See, that's three not, months ago. Yeah, that's that's within the margin of error. Um, yeah. And so I, we're basically the same age. Your wife is a nurse with really really sick babies. Yeah. My wife is a nurse. There you go. And so we oftentimes discuss things, and um, we deal with 
cynicism specifically about just, I don't understand how any of this can be good. And so when I, like, this this baby is a year old with leukemia, or this poor child was born with Crohn's syndrome, or with Crohn's disease, and now also has cancer. Yeah. And I honestly don't know how people like your wife and mine can even function in that job. It would break me apart in a way that I don't know I would ever be able to come back from. And I'm glad that they can do that. But I don't, I always struggle talking with my wife and with others like that about dealing with that with a God that is good or, or theodicy is, is the fancy word yep. for that. But I try to not yep. use um, seminary words for, I just don't like them. So how do you deal with that as a pastor? And then specifically, I like the way that you deal with it a bit in your book. But as a pastor, how do you counsel people through that that are dealing with that? Well, I, I try to figure out, first of all, like what they're looking for. I don't think uh, suffering is a time to necessarily deconstruct someone's faith or to start them down a road of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes people just need to survive and to get through it. And, I, and I'm not encouraging people to have like unhealthy name it, claim it sort of stuff. And if they're having that sort of dysfunctional theology, I might jump in and have a, a conversation to steer them to something a little bit healthier. But I, my first question is like, okay, what, what are you looking for here? Where, where are you going? Because I, I know in adversity, um, Job's friends had a lot of good things to say. Mm-hmm. And it got worse when they started to use them. So I, I think part of what I want to do when I step into a situation like that is I just want to sit and be present with them. And so I'm not doing a lot of... Hey, here's a book you need to read, or here's how you should see this. As much as, hey, here's what you need to experience, and that's someone being a loving presence to you. Uh, but I can say that I had um, a situation uh, back in July where uh, we ended up spending two nights on the oncology floor at Dell Children's Hospital, and we thought that our four-year-old daughter uh, had leukemia for two days, and so it was, mm. um, yeah, it was two of the worst days of my life. And then when we finally found out after a bone marrow biopsy came back and said, no, it's not that it's something else. Um, it was the best, best news I've ever received. Um, absolute blessing. But uh, like, this is the world that your wife lives in because she sees these sick babies that have mm-hmm. cancer. And in that moment, what I was reminded of is that I was not alone in this, that, that God is not some, you know, magical, uh, phrase for me to utter. If I say the right prayer, then I get this hocus pocus reaction that turns it into my magical ideal future. That's not what God is. I, I think what I had is that God was with me in suffering. Yeah. And so th- I think that's the move is that I, I'm not looking for an answer because I think ultimately answers don't get you where you need to go. I think what the Christian tradition offers for us is a story. And that's the story of God stepping into suffering with us. And so in Jesus, I know that he's experienced the worst of the world, and he will step into it with me too. Yeah. And so you talked a little bit about what God isn't. And so to flip that, what is God then? Like, if, if God isn't causing the suffering, yeah. what is God? Um, and, yeah. and I know the fancy answer is, well, God is love, and that's great and all. But how do we flesh that out? Like, what? When I talk yeah. about, when you talk about God, what exactly are we talking about? Well, I think you need to except that God in some ways, uh, th- this is a, a line from a uh, Pentecostal theologian named Chris Green. He says, at some point you have to acknowledge that God is not useful, that you can't use God to get what you want, that the sort of name it, claim it stuff mm-hmm. is not something that God's offering. It's just not there. And so if you want God to be a provider of services for you that you can't provide for yourself, God's not useful. Uh, I had a parishioner once who was trying to process this and he goes, well, if God doesn't give me what I want, then like, what's the point? 
I go, yeah, well, that's what you've got to figure out at this point. Uh, that, that God isn't that genie that you're looking for. And so uh, on the other side of that, I think is relationship. And I think that's the invitation that we've had all along from the very beginning in the garden. The invitation is that, that, that God is going to walk with you, mm-hmm. that, that God is going to be there beside you. And even when you mess things up, the one that is going to clothe you from the consequences of your own decisions is God. Yeah. And I think what God has given us is God. And it's not always what you want. It's not always what you you feel like would be the best scenario. But the story of God working in the world is that God is with the Jewish people and God didn't provide for them the way they wanted. They wanted a perfect situation, but when they're in the wilderness, what do they get? They get manna. They get this literally food that's translated, what is this? But that (laughs) what is this is enough. And I think sometimes we look at God's provision and go, what is this? This isn't what I want. And I think that's the invitation to receive the daily bread that God still provides for us. Yeah. I'd like to think that that manna is the ancient Near East equivalent of soylent, because I've heard that that stuff is effectively nutritionally valuable, mm-hmm. barely, but awful. Like just, yeah. just enough. Yeah. Just, uh, just, just enough. enough. Um, so there's a, <laughs> a chapter in your book that I want you to flesh out a bit. So you talk a bit about um, character, not container. And, and this, the yeah. part in that chapter that really got to me is you say, um, and I'm going to try to quote you from memory, um, love makes us weak because love makes us vulnerable. And that yeah. might not be 100% right, but I think it's close. So okay. when you say that, what do you mean? In that the quote might not, might not be right or the statement itself, the, the nah, idea the behind quote. it. Might... I, I was trying to quote okay. you from memory, but I didn't write it down because I'm lazy. Um, I it, feel like that's close, enough. though. Honestly, I believe you. Like, I could have written that. Like, I would I would co-sign that. That's right. I, <laughs> I, I have a, a guy who's actually been on my podcast who is a CIA operative for eight, eight years or so. And I was looking for a picture of him online and I was like, I don't see anything of you with your kids on Facebook or I don't see like anything. And he goes, um, old habits die hard. And I'd like, <laughs> just imagine it like in the voice of someone from a Western mm-hmm. old habits die hard because you, when you're a CIA operative, you don't put anything out there that your enemy could use against you to, to make you weak. And that's mm-hmm. what, re- that's what relationships do. My, I just told you beforehand that, uh, this morning my wife calls me and says that she's been in a car accident. And so I freak out and I'm worried because I, because I've chosen to enter into this lifelong partnership with this woman that I love, I am now vulnerable and susceptible to being hurt in ways that I wouldn't be before. Mm-hmm. It, th- that's just what love does because you open yourself up. And this is what you know as a parent is that to be a parent is to live every day with your heart walking outside of your chest. Because it's there with your kids. Like there's nothing that makes me more vulnerable than being a father. There's also nothing that makes me more fulfilled and um, overwhelmed with gratitude for the existence I have. Love is this invitation. Like do you want to close yourself off from all that God has to offer or will you receive it and all the consequences that it, that it has for you? And the consequence is that you're vulnerable. You can be hurt. Yeah, well, and I've also found um, the more open I am to relationships – uh, the more loving the world becomes, but the quicker I am to get angry. And that's probably a me thing. I don't know what the what correlation is. What do you mean? What kind between, of anger? Oh, man. Well, mostly with my kids. I feel like there's a dam that opens inside of me that um, is the emotional dam. And whatever love flows through that can quickly become angry when I feel like expectations aren't met or reciprocated, huh. which is probably a me thing. Hadn't planned on saying that. <laughs> 
That's yeah, yeah. hadn't hadn't planned on saying. It. You know what? There That's fine. Go. We're gonna leave that alone. We're gonna leave that right there. <laughs> yeah. You used to save that for your therapist. Yeah. Well, um, we'll say that that's you now. Honestly, um, there's a, a line in your book. You said you started your podcast just because you wanted to talk to people about the stuff you were doubting. That's honestly the reason I started mine, and I never expected anybody to tell me yes that they would come onto the show, and then they did. But it's been so. And you've fl- had some good people on there. It's been right. So, yeah, well, I've got I, I've got Luke Norsworthy. Brugeman. <laughs> I expect yeah. everybody that I've honestly every time I email someone, I expect them to say no to pr- protect myself against hurt. There it is. <laughs> um, there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had Tom Wright on the podcast too, didn't you? Tom is great. Yeah, we talked right around uh, the royal wedding, which was fun. That's pretty. Which sweet. was very fun and very hard to not slip into the British fake American mm. version that I like to try to do. Because that would have, I feel like, been insulting. You use two big words that I do want to drill into because I feel like a <laughs> lot of the hangups on the the church proper today, specifically with my Calvinist friends or dogmatic or hyper fundamentalist friends, you use orthodoxy and you use orthopraxy. Yeah. And yeah. can you break those apart a bit? What they mean, and then if if what they mean is true, what that means for our faith. Yeah. Uh, so ortho, meaning right, as in like you go to the orthodontist to make your teeth right, mm-hmm. uh, straight, true. Is that what that and, means? I don't know. It should be. <laughs> it should be. How are the seminary? That seems about right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I said it enough that I think it's true now. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, ortho, like right. And then uh, ortho, <laughs> orthopraxy means right practice and orthodoxy as in right thinking. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of what the church has done is like, let's make sure you think right. Let's make sure that your thinking is good. And therefore that means you're, uh, a card carrying Christian. We've done that at the expense of saying, what about praxis? Like, what about the way you live? What about the, you know, the Matthew 25, when Jesus says, Oh, if you, if you fed someone, if you clothe them, if you visited a prisoner, that's when you will know that you're one of us. That's when you know you're, you're an insider. And so I think we've, uh, we've intellectualized faith at the expense of making it about what we do. And I think you see that fleshed out a lot in American Christianity. So how do we engage in a dialogue then? Because the, the more that I do this show and the more that I read and the more that I pray, uh, and the more that I deal with my own issues with God, the more I feel called to actually live differently. And when I do that, I get called a heretic because it doesn't match someone else's orthodoxy. Hmm. And I don't know how to make how, those two things work. How do, how do you get called a, her- a heretic? Oh, man. Well, I, the other day, um, I was just reading, um, and honestly, it's because N.T. Wright, I was reading quite a bit about women in ministry and whatnot, and uh, someone else was like, well, you just read the scriptures wrong. You did it wrong. This is not what that means. Women can't be in ministry. And the fact that you even believe that, I don't even know why you go to church anymore. You, you, uh, or if I talk about inerrancy, or the, it's really with my fundamental fundamentalist friends. Um, but to be fair, most of my friends that are religious are from Liberty. Um, and that was self-induced because that's where gotcha. I went. So I, I could have chose, oh. I, I went to visit Hardin Simmons or Abilene Christian, and I chose to neither, to do neither one of those. Um, well, Abilene is working against you. Like Abilene says, we don't want you here because we're so ugly. And so I get that. Like, why is Abilene ugly? Have you been there? Yeah. I mean, you're from, oh wait, you're from Midland. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Abilene, compared to any, everything's beautiful compared to yes. Midland. I'm sorry, I yeah, forgot. I, I remember the first time I flew my wife out. Well, we flew into Dallas, um, which she had to circle because there was a tornado. So she was delayed for hours, scared her yeah. out of her mind. You know, not yeah. a big deal. I was fine yeah. with it. And then as we drive into Midland, it progressively gets, if you can get more flat than Dallas and more yellow, 
mm-hmm. and more dead. Ground. Yeah. It, it gets there until all we have are dirt and buildings. Um, so, I mean, Abilene, I mean, that's where, that's, we're close to the lakes. I mean, we, or a, like, is it Buffalo? Gap. Uh, yeah. Buffalo Gap. Yeah. That's where my parents used to live. Yeah. That's where we would there. go for Memorial Day. So for yeah. me, Abilene's an oasis, um, com- you know, <laughs> compared to Midland. You know, it's like the, uh, the person with the talents, like there's one with 10 and one with five and one with one. Mm-hmm. And if you're calling Abilene beautiful, like you have like a, a tiny fraction of one talent of beauty where you're, where you're from. What? And I know scripture says that God's like reveal God's, you know, power and love through creation, but it's very hard to see that in Midland. I'm just saying it's, it's <laughs> like the worst. Well, it's so, in the people. I will say the most beautiful part of Midland is being able to go out at four well, or five in the morning. And watch the moon set and the sunrise at the same time with the uh, noxious fumes of all the oil refineries because it really makes the <laughs> sunrise beautiful. Um, so it's pitch black on one side and all the colors on the other side at the expense yeah. of the planet, but currently beautiful. Yeah. And then as you get out towards East Texas, that two weeks when the blue bonnets flower, if you go out at sunrise, sure. it's like the entire planet's moving and that's beautiful. But there besides those two to three days, the other days are pretty. Seth, what I appreciate about you is this, that you've <laughs> created an ideology that lets you see beauty in Midland, Texas. And I think what we're called to do as people is to see the beauty <laughs> of God wherever we are. And so I feel like no matter if your friends call you a heretic, the fact that you can do that sort of like monologue about the beauty of Midland, Odessa, speaks to the spiritual formation that's happened in your soul. And for that, I say, well done, Seth. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that after that. Okay, your question. You're you're uh, you're you're being called heretics. Uh, a heretic. I have to think by... it's happened to you. I mean, just from the some of the guests that you have on your show has to push against the bulk of what you know the normal church says, I, I, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, but I I'm an Enneagram seven, so what people says, whatever doesn't that doesn't it, it it might have. I don't feel like I have. I get a, a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Part of it is that I'm in the churches of Christ and our tradition has, uh, some of us are pretty fundamentalist too, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. Okay. I have been called a fundamentalist. I've had people write like a 27 word paper critiquing a three week series I did on music. So like I've had, I've had that stuff happen, mm-hmm. it, whatever. It's just part of life. Um, I, but I think when, when people do that, it says less about you and more about them. Mm-hmm. Cause what they're doing is, is they're revealing to you that I'm so afraid of me being wrong, of my picture of God makes makes it such uh, a trepidation-inducing experience to hear someone whose perspective is outside of mine, because it might make me feel like, what I, what if I thought that was right eventually? And what if I thought what I believe right now is actually wrong? Because that makes me wrong. That means I'm on the other end of God, and God is mad at me, mm-hmm. and I'm outside the bounds of what's right. I think they're expressing to you their own anxiety, and you're just a screen upon which they're projecting that. And so, um, when they say that to you, I think it's more uh, like it's more a reflection of, of who they are and their their inability to live in the tension of humanity, of trying to understand who God is. And if you don't have the the bandwidth to see that there are different perspectives, that's because you probably feel like you're you're walking on a pretty uh, a pretty thin line that at any moment you could fall off. Yeah, that reminds me of a quote that I'm going to badly say, and I don't even remember who said it. Could have been anybody. Um, something about, you know, the God that we read in the Bible usually looks a lot like the God that we want to see. Like it, it, it's a mirror, it's a reflection of yourself. And so if you see a hateful, angry, vengeful, yeah. tribalistic, whatever God, so when you, and if you see a loving God, it's probably got something to say. So that's, that's what I hear in that. Uh, but no, specifically the ones that, the one recently, 
is, you know, it's the caravan thing. Where, okay. uh, all, you know, a lot of my Christian brothers and sisters, uh, you know, want to protect the country and support not letting them come. And then I read Matthew 25 and be like, no, I'm pretty sure that we should not have church on Sunday and drive down there and give them food, water, and clothing. And so there's that, yeah. there's that disconnect that, that I get the most pushback on. Um, yeah, no, I, I get that, but I think that yeah, you, you're waiting into politics, and I think that speaks of, like in all Christianity, I think deals with politics, mm-hmm. not in the partisan politics of today, but in the sense of like, how do you treat people in the macro? How are you a good neighbor? That's that's politics. Yeah. Um, I think when, when people respond so vehemently on issues like that, it speaks to the fact that they've been more discipled by Fox News or MSNBC than they are by the words of Jesus. Yeah. And what we have happened in those moments is that we realize that our ideologies have become idolatries and that we've we've elevated these things to the place of deities or religion and what it should be. And so I, I think what you're doing is you're dealing with a power and principality that is it's bigger than what they want it to be because it's not it's become beyond what they actually want it to be. Politics yeah. isn't just politics anymore. It, it's become an ideology that that defines them. And that's. Yeah, that's idolatry. That's Christian. That's what Judeo-Christian tradition has called idolatry for years. I want to drive it home. I want to honor our our time commitment. So, if if we understand is God over good, and from what I got overall from your book is God is so much more loving and bigger than anything, not not necessarily bad that can happen, but but God is just so much better than whatever we want to call good. There's not really a good metaphor. And that, it, honestly, when we talk about God, that's really all that we talk about is, you know, metaphor, you know, everlasting, yeah, true and, yep. benevolent, whatever the words are. And so if we really believe that God is over good, what will that change tomorrow in tomorrow, in next week's sermon? Like, what will that change in our religion and in our faith? And not just in our small little segments of Cooperative Baptist or Church of Christ, but the church proper, the capital C church, what will it change if we can yep. get behind God over goodness? Well, I hope is that that people don't walk away when when their sandcastle, when their structure, when their barricade gets gets knocked over. Unfortunately, many of us have relegated God to just our definition of what a good God should be. And so we we juxtapose our expectations that we've created. And like you you said earlier, uh, often those are our own character, the virtues that that we elevate to be valued. We turn those onto the macro and say that's what God is. But God doesn't. God has never signed up to live up to those. That's not what God has promised. And what I hope people get is that even if things aren't good, that God is still with you, and that even when circumstances don't go the way you want, when you understand it. That, that God has never signed up to do what you want God to do, but what God has offered to do is enough, then I think you can not walk away when your sandcastle gets knocked over and when you're pulled out to sea. And what ho- hopefully you'll find is that when you're out to sea and you feel like faith hasn't gone the way you wanted, that the very thing that is maybe pulling you out is the very thing that's trying to save you. So the, the book has already been released at every recording. It was released two weeks ago, middle of October? Yeah, Does that sound something right? like, uh, beginning of October, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's October, a few weeks ago. Time flies. I watch a lot of Ferris Bueller, and, and so time moves quickly Just, when you have three kids under, under under 10. So it's 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 everywhere that books are sold. I'm everywhere big, that good books are sold. Definitely. And I know, that, well, the other day I was at Books A Million, so I moved your books, and I promised Suzanne that I would do this in my episode with her. I, I move it to the end caps. I move it where people That's can the, see it. 
Um, that is the biblical thing to do. That's orthodoxy and orthopraxy yeah. merged together. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's it's helpful. I, mean, I saw you put something on Twitter the other day. If you know, you could get a free book, or you could help your just, kids go to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, got three kids too, man. <laughs> yeah. With that being said, where do people go to interact with you? Definitely listen to more of your podcast if they if they like the cut of your jib. Um, how do they interact with you? Cut of my jib. I like that. If you're picking up what I'm putting down mm-hmm. with my jib yeah, cuts, absolutely. Uh, I'm on the internet. Uh, the I, I, I uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, eh, eh, Twitter, eh, Instagram. I feel like I'm moving really? to Instagram. That's where I want to be. I, I feel like it's less. It's like less combative than Twitter, uh-huh. and it's um, it's I don't want to say like less all those like weird people from high school ish than Facebook, <laughs> but maybe no, that's not true. Uh, yeah, but like hit me up on Instagram. I'll, I'm there. I'll, I'll be on Twitter as well. Instagram, too, so. huh? Okay. Are, are you on Instagram? I, I, I'm, I'm like I am, but I rarely post to it, mostly because I get annoyed that I can't post links ever easily. Like I can't even say like, hey. Here's a cool whatever, whatever. I can't, yep. like I can't post links. And I don't really take a lot of pictures that aren't of my kids. And I don't really want to share those pictures with people that I don't actually know. If, yeah, that's fair. You know what I mean? Hey, um, hey I, I if could that's just, what you want to yeah. jib with your cuts, do that, man. Well, they're, I mean, they're nice knives. Lots, lots of nice cuts. Um, yeah. But uh, where can they listen to your where, where can they listen to your show, uh, to your podcast? Um, and then if they want to hear more of of your sermons, those are available online as well. The iTunes, everywhere. just type all in my it. name on iTunes. There's a ton of content out there. Okay, uh, all of it is good, but if you want what's over good, like God, just mm-hmm. go buy the book. That's Absolutely. the most. Like buy, buy a bunch of copies, give, and you and don't have to read them. them all. Just just buy them. Don't yeah. give them. Tell your friends to buy it too. <laughs> I've buy, got kids. Buy ten, stack them up, and rotate. They're, the books. You know what color the books are? Do you know? It's red. Yeah, do you know what uh, the best color is for Christmas decoration, Seth? Absolutely. I see where you're going it, with this. It, Definitely green. No, no, red. No, I you, did it red. Wrong. You could just use it as Christmas decoration. Just get like <laughs> 20 of them, wrap them around your tree. Merry Christmas. <laughs> if you're Jewish, happy Hanukkah, Festival of Lights, it works for that. It's perfect. Um, but the, the key thing is, though, the ribbon that wraps them together, that has to be green. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that was definitely, in, <laughs> definitely. implied. I'm definitely. glad you could infer that. Why not? Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you again, Luke. The most free, the most freewheeling podcast that I've done so far. So, so. Hey, that, that's a compliment I want to receive. Seth, you've been doing some good work. You got some good guests. I feel like you got this podcast thing going for you. So keep yeah. it up. I'm glad you're doing it. Yeah. I respect someone who started a podcast because they wanted to talk to people. And I'm glad the people said yes to when you asked them to be on the podcast. So keep up the good work, man. I think that it is important for us to possibly take four to 15 steps back of what we think goodness should look like, what our expectations are when we pray, what our expectations of good need to be. Because if we're honest, good revealed in scripture is not always what we expect. What I think is good is not always right. And I know that so often what I think is good is most likely not holy. And so I'm challenged both after speaking with Luke and after reading God over good to really sit with that. 
when I pray for something to sit well with me, to be good in my life, that might mean that I give something up. That might mean that it's wrapped itself in trauma. Good does not mean pleasing. Good does not mean happy. It can, but it doesn't always. So we are going to have to learn to wrestle and be transparent about doubt and about cynicism. And I really think the key there is cynicism, as you heard Luke speak about halfway through there. Cynicism is, I think, in my mind, this sarcastic part of me that refuses to see what is true and beautiful and actually good. So I'll leave you with that. If you haven't yet, go to the show notes or just Google God Over Good or Luke Norsworthy get a copy of this book. He's right, it is read, and I do believe it would be a great Christmas gift. Um, I don't disagree with him at all. So buy 27 copies. If you have not done so, even if you have, do it again. I don't think you can, but let's do it again. Rate and review the show on whatever format you downloaded it in. The primary one I know is iTunes, but there are others, CastBox, Stitcher, and a bunch of others that I've never heard of. But please rate and review the show. That is one of the single best and easiest ways to have more people come in contact with some of the conversations that are going on both here and extended beyond here. And I would appreciate it. It costs you no money and it costs you very little time. Uh, Be honest in your review. I do read those and I appreciate each and every single one of them. There has been continual weekly surges in the Patreon support. I'm ever thankful for that. I literally don't have the correct words to express my gratitude to each and every single one of you that takes the time to do that with intention. And I appreciate you so much. The music today uh, is, is someone that I've followed their music for a while. And so I've alluded to being or living close to Charlottesville, Virginia, often. And so there's a band that has popped in and off my radar because of localness called Tim Be Told. Is there a contemporary Christian music group that originated in Charlottesville? You can find their music at timbetold.com, as well as you'll find today's tracks on the Spotify playlist. But please go to that playlist, support the artists. They get a little bit of money every time you play the songs. And so just binge that playlist. I've, I love doing it myself. So... With that, I'll let you go. I'll talk with you next week with a conversation about a new moral ethic that is greatly, deeply, pressingly needed in our church with Dr. David Gushy. Looking forward to it. I'll talk to you soon. Take me so